0: Welcome fellow brave believers. This is kingdom cast. I'm Sean Griffin. Thanks for joining me tonight and you're watching this on kingdom and context. So if you haven't already subscribed to this channel, please do so now. If you haven't already subscribed to our secondary channel kingdom cast, please go do that as well. Uh, We're trying to grow that secondary channel so that we can actually live stream from there according to YouTube's requirements. So if you will go over to Kingdom Cast in the search bar YouTube or go to my recommended channels here in Kingdom in Context, click subscribe, help us reach uh, our goal that we need. We need to get over a thousand minimum before we can live stream over there. And in the future, we're going to do all of our live streams for our Monday through Thursday podcast from that secondary channel. So please go help us out. Check out hit the subscribe button. If everybody watching this video went over and did that, we would already be there. So please consider it before you click off or before you do anything. Um, otherwise, Hope, hopefully tonight will be a benefit to you. And I appreciate you for, you know, clicking on this video. Um, as always, we want to thank everyone that's supporting us um, on a regular basis. You guys, or one time, you know, what if you, if you su- supported us like once a year and a half ago, we thank you so much. If you're supporting us monthly, we really appreciate you guys. Uh, if it's quarterly, we really appreciate you. Um, it's really what helps us do what we're doing all the time that it does take away from my regular job in order to, Ah, uh, do the studies, put together the scriptures, the thoughts, uh, the rebuttals, everything that's involved. um it's it's because you give me the option to do that. So really, really thank you. and all of our patrons as well on Patreon, uh, really, really thank you. So that's something that all those links are in the description below, guys, if that's something that the father puts on your heart, and Patreon's actually be, you know um, the, what for what Patreon is being something that you can just do like small monthly installments, um, and it's just automated, it's really easy. so, we really appreciate everyone for doing that. Uh, I want to say hello, hello to people in the chat. I really appreciate you guys. Um, we've got quite a few people in the chat already. Earl Rogers, thank you. Welcome, brother. AC is here. Nathan Lyles, Chauncey Lump, Mr. Bear, John French, uh, Jubion Kenobi, David Shearer. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here. The Great Deception is back. Arc Builder CCMC, welcome, brothers. Nick McPherson, welcome. Christina B., Lawkeeper, Catherine huey <laughs> I hope I said that right. Um, Welcome back, everyone. It's good to see everybody here. Bobby Moe's back. Um, West Place Music is back. Welcome, brother. Wilkins25. Hello, hello. Stephen Belk. Mary A. James Henry. Welcome, everybody. Katrina Brown. Um, you guys are awesome. As always... Everything I talk about tonight, I'm about to go through the slides. We're reviewing uh, Matthew 10 through 12, and you're probably going to have some questions about certain things. Hold your questions to the end. And then um, as always, and this is what uh, David Shearer is trying to tell everybody, hold your questions till the end and then put them in all capitalization so that we can easily see them and you have a higher chance of your question getting answered and addressed. So please, please be uh, wait till the end and then put them in all caps. So. I say the end, but it's more like, you know, after I finish these slides, after I finish the the general presentation of the scriptures, basically. But this particular series that we're doing um, for tonight's podcast is a continuation in our, our series, New Testament Context for Pastors. And the reason why I started this is because there is a lot of seminaries out there that do not teach Old Testament context to ideas that we see in the New Testament. Instead, they teach a lot of interpretation that is solely off of new testament passages and they do not reference the old testament for their context you know as far as like why is jesus saying all these things you know why did he say this in this chapter why is he talking that why do he reference this so this is what this is about um if you're a pastor this is, this is done with as much love as possible because I know sometimes people go to different seminaries to become pastors or Bible colleges and some don't go to any of those and they just become a pastor because they have a zeal for God and they want to share the truth of Christ with people and they just, you know, they love God and, you know, want to preach the word. It's, it's a calling they feel put on their life and their heart and we respect you guys for that. We, we know the sacrifice involved in that. Um, so the whole point of me doing this is not in any way to say that you're doing anything wrong Um, I I don't know you, whoever's randomly watching this, it may be a pastor, and I don't know exactly what you teach. I'm just offering this and this series as a resource for you. So just like you got all your other books behind you from different commentaries and seminaries and different ideas that help you with your preparation for your lesson plans, lovingly, I would submit, maybe this would also help you as a resource. Okay. Um, Because what I'm going to be trying to do is offer relevant context to some of these concepts that are are being mentioned in the gospels. And, um, and actually I, 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 my goal is to go through every book in the new Testament, but right now we're starting in Matthew and we're already at uh, chapter 10 through 12. So hopefully this will be a blessing to you and anyone who's not a pastor, who just wants to learn the scriptures better and know their Messiah better. That's our goal. All right, everyone, I am going to get started and I'll, Pull this up for us to look at So Matthew 10 I'm excited guys Matthew 10 (laughs) It's a huge chapter There's so much going on in this chapter Um, Matthew 10 Jesus summoned his 12 disciples And gave them authority over unclean spirits To cast them out To heal every kind of disease Every kind of sickness Now the names of the 12 apostles are these The first Simon who is called Peter And Andrew his brother And James, the sons of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and then Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do do not enter into the city of the Samaritans, but rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons freely received freely give all right so there's a lot to look at in here so let's look real quick though at the disciples themselves he chose 12 of them now you guys know we're and we'll go over this in the book of luke but there was actually originally 72 but then they didn't they didn't stick with him so it was eventually ended up being 12 but he has something specific to say to these 12 that stuck around um, and, if, and as many of us already know, Judas didn't make it. To, he did not endure to the end, <laughs> so he's replaced with a guy named Matthias in Acts chapter one. But that's a little sub tangent, okay? But let's look at real quick at these actual twelve, okay? Simon, Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. These are the disciples of Yeshua. Did you guys know that Moses had under his authority twelve leaders as well? And these were their names. We get this from the book of numbers, chapter one, and they were heads over their 12 tribes, each person per tribe. They were in addition to the elders. Uh, these were the heads over their tribes, um, as just the leadership, right? So these are supposed to, they were expected to be better than the rest, not just because they were older, but also they were in charge. They had authority, but they were also under Moses. So this is where we get symbolic and literal fulfillment. Of this idea in deuteronomy 18 that the father yahweh would raise up a prophet like unto moses so this is just one example of the many that we can see in that and we see that yeshua promises his disciples that they would actually be judges each disciple would be a judge over the 12 tribes sitting and they would sit on 12 thrones he says this in matthew 19 now i know we're not to matthew 19 yet but for the relevance of what we're talking about i wanted to give you an idea from this, this parallel of what we see in the Old Testament of how Moses also had 12, 12 distinct tribes under him, and they all had leaders as well that he conferred with, in addition to his elders that he chose to help him with judge, judgment and things like that from the law. So it says in Matthew 19, 27 through 28, And then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, is it is it is it one for one? I don't know. I don't really know. I don't know if Simon Peter is going to be over the tribe of Reuben, and I don't know if Andrew is going to be over the tribe of Simeon. I don't know. Um, and I know there's a lot of speculation on the disciples themselves as far as historically what tribe did they come from. Um, some historians think they're all from the tribe of Judah. Some other historians uh, who I don't I don't think that by the way I would think there's it's definitely a lot more going on in the interim times between the the returning exiles from Babylon um, and then how they eventually spread out over time into Samaria which would be the the former northern house of Israel I mean heck that's where Jesus grew up right in Nazareth which was the land of Naphtali so even though Ju- Jesus was declared from the tribe of Judah he still was not growing up in the territory of judah you see what i mean they were all mixed together by the time we get to the days of yeshua and the in the first century bc leading into the yeshua's life they were all mixed together so it was this is where we go back into you know first and second chronicles we start looking at the history of the returning exiles as well um, and we start to see there's a lot going on there and as far as uh, the different tribes that did come back and could come back and some didn't and because in my opinion, there's a reason why some would not have is because they knew the message of the gospel of the kingdom. So they knew that they were just walking through prophecy anyway. But others did come back. They restored the temple. They set shop up. They defended their homeland. We see this with um, on into, you know, into the book of Esther with Nehemiah and different situations going on in there. We see also the, the Maccabean revolt in that whole time period where they were faithfully keeping the law of God and um, in, in Samaria. So there's even a time, and this is another show that we're going to do later, but there's even a time where the Samarians themselves actually built their own temple. So for a lot of you folks that you may remember in John chapter four, I know we're not to the book of John yet, but in John chapter four, where the lady at the well, Yeshua, she's asking Yeshua, you know, where will we worship in the future? You know, in the kingdom of God will it be here in Samaria or Jerusalem? And Yeshua's like, you'll neither worship in neither place, you know, because it'll be, the kingdom of god right so it's a totally different construct it's called jerusalem yes and, but it's it's much bigger it's a totally different topography basically so uh, neither one of her suggestions were correct technically according to prophecy but the reason she asks that is because in history around the second century bc the sumerians actually built their own temple to yahweh <laughs> You guys have probably heard of the Sumerian Pentateuch, right? They had their own Bible. It was just the first five books of Moses. That was all it was. They didn't have the law and the prophets. So that's why you have a lot of um, disagreement from the southern region of Judea uh, where another where the centralized returning exiles had stayed and lived and propagated. They had a lot of disagreement with the Sumerians because they had half the story. They only had the, the first five books. And so um, they weren't they didn't. You would have issues with doctrine and with commonality and things like that because they're ignoring the prophets. Now, the point is they built a temple with the um, with the permission of the Greeks. And then over that time later, the Seleucids came in and destroyed that temple. And so therefore, this that's why the Sumerians were talking about where are we going to worship? Because from their perspective in that culture, in that day and age, they did have an actual different temple in their land. So. Now, no, that temple was not ordained by God. That temple was not prophesied. That was just their own intentions. That was just their own zealousness and lack of perspective. You see what I'm saying? So that that temple was short-lived. It didn't stick around. Um, I don't know who the priests were that ministered in there. It's it's a you know it's a very weird time in in the in the history of, of Samaria. Okay, but this is why you have this interlocking in, uh, conversation that's always going on in Scripture about. Samaria because you have stuff like this like we're looking at the disciples of Yeshua because he technically grew up in the northern area which would have been like Samaria in this this former northern house of Israel area he did not grow up in the southern house of where Benjamin Judah Simeon you know that whole that whole southern area down there so he's pulling people from around the Sea of Galilee that are you know different people right as you See his and historians really struggle To figure out where what tribe These these guys were associated with So the good news is um, It's Speculation guys I'm just putting this out there It's speculation that Each of his disciples Were from one of the tribes and That they knew in their day Which tribe he was from you See what I'm saying because that's why He would be able to tell them in this Following passage in matthew 19 that you guys are going to be sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of israel it's speculation though it's hard to it's hard to prove and pin down historically or in the even in the gospels but it's uh it's a it's a one-to-one ratio as far as 12 disciples and 12 leaders of israel the 12 tribes and then there's 12 thrones obviously so that yeshua is doing this intentionally if we go on in, in matthew 10 24 through 27 it says therefore do not uh, well he I'll read the whole passage. He says, "A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they call the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that, is not, that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. So he's, of course, warning them of persecution that's going to come. Persecution, I should say, that's going to come. Because remember, he's sending them out right to, to uh, preach the good news. This is also what we see in Luke 9 and 10. He's going to send them out. And when he sends them out, he goes to the cities from where they grew up, and he starts preaching. So he's actually separate. He's, that means, guys, that at this point in his discipleship with, his, with the 12 disciples, he's actually already taught them enough where he feels confident that they can go out and teach other people. The gospel of the kingdom of God, because remember that's what he teaches. This is this is his main core message that he teaches, right? That we talked about in the first part, part one of this series, where we went over Matthew chapter one through three. So as a result of that, he sent his disciples out to teach that same message to the cities that they go through, right? And then they're going to come back together. We don't see this in Matthew, but we see it in Luke how they come back together and they talk, and we have you know some famous conversation there. But What's interesting is he's telling them, do not fear. There's nothing concealed. Even the people that are going to persecute you for the message that you're bringing them, do not fear. There's nothing concealed that will will be revealed or hidden that you will not be made known and guys. This is him talking from something that we see expressly told to us in a book, not in the American canon. It used to be in other Bibles. It's still in other canons today around the world, like the Ethiopian or Eastern Orthodox canon, but the, the Catholics secluded this book. Uh, from their particular canon over time. And so therefore it's a lot of people in American Protestant churches have no familiarity with the book of first Enoch and how relevant it is to what Yeshua is teaching them. But it actually says in first Enoch 98 verses six through nine, it says, I've sworn unto you sinners by the Holy great one, All your deeds are revealed in the heavens, that none of your deeds of oppression are covered and hidden. And do not think in your spirit nor say in your heart that you do not know and that you do not see that every sin is every day recorded in heaven in the presence of the Most High. From henceforth, you know that all your oppression wherewith you oppress is written down every day till the day of your judgment. Woe to you, you fools, for through your folly shall you perish and you transgress the wise. And so good fortune shall not be your portion. And now, you guys remember what we talked about, the wise, the definition of what wise is? We looked at that last week or two weeks ago. It's someone that's doing the commandments of God, right? So here's Enoch reprimanding those who say they transgress the wise. They transgress and persecute those who oppress those who do the commandments of God. It says, and now know that you are prepared for the day of destruction. Wherefore, do not hope to live. What kind of living are we talking about? We're talking about, are they going to, This is, we're talking about eternal life, right? They're already alive when he's talking to them. So what happens next? It's either judgment or eternal life is given to you. You're either found a lake of fire and you're dead. You're dead forever, never coming back, or you're given eternal life. So he's, this is talking about the second death, right? This is what Moses talked about in Leviticus 18.5. So this is uh, the same concept here. He says, "Um, wherefore do not hope to live you sinners, but you shall depart and die for, you know, no ransom. Yeshua ransoms us, right? From Sheol, Psalm 49, 15. For you are prepared for the day of the great judgment. What is that? Is that that's awesome. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, great right throne judgment. For the day of tribulation and the great shame for your spirits. So this is, uh, this is Enoch. Just Reiterating what Yeshua talked about. Now, Yeshua is going to expound on what he's talking about. And we also see that Enoch is the only book that introduces and explains the lake of fire, where the second and final eternal death of your body and your soul are destroyed. And that, I just gave you a small passage It actually talks about it earlier as well too It, it goes There's several chapters that talk about the lake of fire And the process of judgment And everything that happens It's, it's expounded upon in the book of First Enoch We do not get those descriptions In the American canon of 66 Old Testament So in Matthew 10 28-33 Yeshua says this Do not fear those who kill the body But are unable to kill the soul But rather fear him who is able to kill both The soul and the body In hell now, the reason why I, I, um, I'm going to single out the word hell here is because we have to look in the Greek. And we have to see what does this word actually say in the Greek. And this is Strong's 1067. It's the word gina or Gehenna, and it is a place of final punishment for the ungodly. And if we look in Helps word studies, it gives us a little bit more breakdown on the Greek reference, and it literally calls it the, word, the lake of fire. This is what the word Gehenna means. It's the lake of fire. It's different than the word Sheol or Hades, which is where your soul goes to await either to await resurrection. Basically, you see what I'm saying? It's different. This is after you're pulled out of Sheol and you're brought before Yeshua for judgment. And then you're judged. This is where your body and your soul are thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed. This is why Yeshua makes that statement. So your body and your soul are destroyed in the lake of fire. You're not alive in the lake of fire. That's why it's called the second death. There is no eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. Your body's destroyed and your soul. All right. So let's go over the first death and your first death. What happens? Your body's destroyed, but your soul goes somewhere else to await resurrection, right? It goes to Sheol or in the Greek, they call it Hades. It's a place of holding where you wait. Until the appropriate appointed time, and you're resurrected, whether it's the first resurrection or the second resurrection. So we're not talking about Sheol; that's a different place where your soul goes after your body's decaying in the grave. Your soul goes there. We're talking about after you've been resurrected back into a body. That means your soul is taken out of Sheol and put back into a body, and now you're standing before Yeshua. If he if you're thrown into the lake of fire at that point, your body's destroyed. That means it's killed. It's it's kaput. It's done. And your soul is destroyed as well. The Catholic idea of eternal conscious torment is not something that is in scripture. It's not in the old Testament. It's not in the new Testament. It's not in the book of Enoch. It is a Catholic idea and invention that creates a world of atheists. So this is something that I hope that pastors do research on the meanings of these words and stop preaching that people will burn forever in hell because for one you're using that word hell out of context are you talking about sheol are you talking about the lake of fire so there's we've done an entire podcast guys um moderators if you have a chance if, if anyone can find that podcast i did like two weeks ago or i said why did god create hell and i break down all these terms and i make it like super simple if you guys could drop that in the chat and then um uh, if you find that one real quick and I would really appreciate it i'm gonna keep keep going on here with with the uh, presentation. but that's the idea is that it's 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 night night it's forever gone you're You're not gonna hang around your body's dead, your soul's dead. there's nothing left to you you're not there's no other part of you that's conscious. you're not gonna be alive and like a fire. The whole point of it is that you're destroyed. you're taken out of the game forever, you're done. So this is what Yeshua is warning people of here. Both your body and your soul are destroyed. Now we see, like I said, this word is is defined for us. That it's the the English translation of hell is a very poor and vague English translation. But if you look, it literally calls this in the in the Strong's. It's it's the word for Gehenna. Now let's go and let's look in the Old Testament. Uh, thank you, Westblaze. I appreciate your brother. He put he found the link there. It's in the chat, guys right below his comment why did God create hell is the title of the video and that's the youtube link if you guys want to go check it out after this and you if anyone's watching this, this is the first time you've seen kingdom of context you never heard me talk about this stuff or break down the meanings of these words this video right here go check it out i'll break it all down for you i think you'll be blessed by it yeah thank you thank you david share appreciate it so guys let's look here real quick okay this is this is the lake of fire being mentioned in the old testament as well okay But it doesn't explain to you that this is where the second death happens. It doesn't explain to you what the lake of fire is. It just it just references it if that can make sense. Again, the book of first Enoch is the only place that explains to you what the lake of fire is, where it is. It's not under the earth. It's actually with the it's actually in the New Jerusalem. And it's uh it's next to the throne of Yeshua. So it's something that he personally oversees. But um, this is what we're gonna read here in Isaiah chapter 30, 27 through 33, and it says Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar. His wrath burns and is heavy to bear. His lips are filled with indignation. His tongue is as a devouring fire. His breath as a torrent overflowing even to the midst of the neck to destroy the nations unto nothing and the bridle of error that was in the jaws of the people. You should have a song as in the night of, of sanctified solemnity and the joy of heart as when one goes with a pipe to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel and the Lord shall make the glory of his voice to be heard And shall show the terror of his arm in the threatening of wrath and in the anger of devouring fire. He shall crush to pieces with whirlwind and hailstones. For at the voice of the Lord, the Assyrians shall fear being struck with the rod. And the passage of the rod shall be strongly grounded, which the Lord shall make to rest upon him with timbrels and harps. And in great battles, he shall overthrow them. For Tophet, that's the lake of fire, is prepared from yesterday. Prepared. By the king, deep and wide, the nourishment thereof is fire and much wood. The breath of the Lord has a torrent of brimstone kindling it. So this is a beautiful passage here of the Day of the Lord. The Antichrist, the beast is being overcome. Uh, it's the same descriptions of hailstones falling from heaven, the breath of the fire of the Lord that comes down. We see this in Second um, uh, Thessalonians eight. We see this in um, uh, we see this in Second Ezra chapter thirteen as well. And this is how he destroys them, okay? It's also Revelation 19 and also in Ezekiel 39. And, of course, it's the same description of the lake of fire, which is where the Assyrian, it's where the beast is thrown into in Revelation 19, he and the false prophet, and it's a place of, you know, brimstone and fire, okay? So this is uh, a wonderful, hopefully, contextual idea to understanding why Yeshua is mentioning these ideas together. He's expl- trying to expound and explain that uh, you should not fear these people that are going to persecute you because they can only kill your body. They can't kill your soul. Only God can kill your soul. You can't sell your soul to the devil, guys. <laughs> it's You don't have it to sell. It's, God owns it, and when your body gives out, he still controls your soul and determines where it goes. You can't literally sell your soul to the devil. You can metaphorically enter into a covenant with the devil, and therefore, you are literally rejecting the Father's love and mercy through his covenant, and therefore, you probably will end up in the lake of fire, but you don't literally own your soul to sell it. Does that make sense? It's just an old trick of the enemy to try to make people be afraid. So let's look at Matthew 10, 28 through 33. And he says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword for, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He does not take his cross and follow after me, he's not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. This passage here uh, gets taken grossly out of context so often. Um, just just in, I, I like the wording though, just to let people know that this is one of those deals where, um, so I think in the Luke version of this, it says that he who hates his mother, um, is not worthy, or he who does not hate his mother is not worthy of me. But guys, it's just just cross reference it with this passage here. He's just saying if you, if you're gonna love your mother or father more than me, you're not worthy of me. Because why? Because your mother and father may be trying to get you to worship Baal or to get you to be an atheist. You see what I'm saying? So that's all its meaning. But as far as the actual passage highlighted here, he's quoting from Micah from the book of Micah from the Old Testament. This is our context that helps us understand what why Yeshua was saying this kind of stuff because it was prophesied that the generation that Yeshua would show up in, would it would have this effect with Yeshua walking around teaching sound doctrine. So this is what we see in Micah chapter 7, verse 2 through 6. And He says, The godly person has perished from the land. There is no upright person among them. There's your context. This is what Yeshua is walking around in. This is why he's calling people to repentance. He says, All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, Also the judge for a bribe and a great man speaks the desires of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come, and then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. For her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son, treat father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. So this is what happens when godliness, a godly people perish from the land and there's no one that's doing what is right. There is no more upright person among them. Families turn on each other. This is what this is the type of generation that Yeshua is walking around in, which is why, and we're going to get into the, the John the Baptist issue in a minute with chapter 11, as far as why those two were prophesied in tandem to, to arrive together. And it was for a reason because they both are, Come to this wicked adulterous generation both of them both john the baptist and jesus tell them to repent which means as we talked about in verse and part one of this series in matthew chapter one through three we talked about the definition of that word repent which means to go back to doing the commandments of god so they were being taught other stuff they were reprobate there was a mixture of religions there was the pharisees running around and infusing their kabbalistic talmudic judaism and keeping and starting to lead people away from the actual commandments of God and all the fervency and the sincerity that we see in the Maccabean, Maccabean period, at 150 years earlier, so there is a a doctrine there. Excuse me, there is an attack of bad doctrine on the people and the believers of Judea on the Israelites. So we see this all throughout the Old Testament. This is a common thing that the enemy does. He tries to sneak in with bad doctrine, to confuse people, to cause them to, to uh, have you know either religious spirits or to reject God altogether, or to go worship false gods and great deception and idolatry. So this is, this is a common attack that we see all throughout history. It's happening again in the days that John the Baptist and Jesus show up. So this is why Yeshua is talking and quoting from Micah chapter 7 in this moment. If we look in Matthew chapter 11, And let's go to 11 through 15. It says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has an ear, let him hear. Now I'm going to go over some of this stuff here in this passage. There's like three different areas of this passage. Let's look at the first one here at the top. Why is John the Baptist considered less is excuse me why is is um among those born of women there's not arisen anyone greater than john the baptist yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than john the baptist what does that mean so yeshua is given an, an extremely high compliment to john the baptist saying that of all the prophets this guy is amazing right of course we know that no one is technically higher than yeshua but he's paying john the baptist a huge compliment to his office of being a prophet and how awesome he was And and I, you know, this is the sad part, guys. I I wonder if there was ever any kind of books written about John the Baptist ministry and what he did in his life. Because Yeshua is like comparing him to the greatest of the prophets and calls him Elijah in the next passage. And I mean, it's just, it makes you wonder like what, what, what did we not see? Like what, what was not written down and told to us? Or if it was ever written down, it's gone now. But the whole concept here is John the Baptist was preaching repentance, meaning he stepped into a wicked adulterous generation that was not doing the commandments of God. And he's telling them, hey, guys, come back to doing the commandments of God. And he had a specific role of a prophet that he stepped in to do that. And that's amazing, right? But even in that, Yeshua is saying that the person who's the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. So what does that mean? Well, we get this explained for us. The context of this statement is understanding the promise of the covenant. And that covenant is between God and mankind, right? That if you walk in his ways, you get grafted into his family of Israel, and then you are now in his covenant. And the reward of that covenant is he gives you a new heart, a new body at the resurrection. And that part of that new heart is detailed for us in Jeremiah 31, 33 and 31 through 34. And it says, behold, days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now the reason why he says the least of them to the greatest of them will all know me, because he says, I will put my law on their hearts. So that means, and then we also see this in other places as well, Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, also in in the book of First Enoch, chapter 5. And it is the promise that we get. This new incorruptible heart and this new eternal body that we get at the resurrection is going to have his laws all of them on their heart will never sin again. We'll never, we'll never do iniquity again. And as a result of that, the least person will be greater than John the Baptist, the least person in heaven, because the law will be on his heart, the entirety of it. John the Baptist was someone that still had to refresh his mind and know the law and learn the law of God. That's why the expounds in this passage in Jeremiah to say people, you will no longer have to teach each other, that you know the law. That's what we're doing today, right? That's literally why you're watching this video. <laughs> is you're learning. You have to. It's not. A, it's, you don't have God's all of His laws and His behavior. You don't have them written on your heart yet. So you're literally having to learn it and do it. You see what I'm saying? This is probably why you clicked on this video. So we're not at this point yet. This happens at the resurrection, guys. Go to our playlist if you like. It's the Red Rescue. We've done an entire three-part series on uh, the you know, Are you in the New Covenant yet? We expound upon all these details and qualifiers. This is just one of them. And this specific detailed qualifier is about the heart you get at the resurrection, which has the behavior of, of the Father and the Son emblazed on that. So you will always do it faithfully. And so, therefore, John the Baptist is struggling with you know his own temptations in life, and he's not perfect, right? He's still in the flesh. He still has a corrupted body and a corrupted heart where he has to teach himself the law of God and get better and better at it over time the best he can. Um, and I'm not saying that saves him and obviously you through his priesthood is what saves us and resurrects us and gives us eternal life. But the point is part of that fulfillment of when we get eternal life is that the, the least person in the kingdom is going to know the law of God and have it on their heart fully. So therefore, he's actually greater and higher in, in understanding and authority and in experience, if I could put it like that, than even John the Baptist was who was considered the greatest of the prophets. So. This is, our, this is our context for Yeshua making that kind of statement. Matthew 11, 11 through 15. He also, this is a huge one people struggle with, right? Where it says, for all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. Well, what does this mean, guys? Until. Let's look at this word in the Greek. Until. Strong's 2193. It's actually the word till. So the word in English that people use the word until, sometimes they think that that's a stopping point. They say, oh, this happened until something else happened but that's not what this Greek word means. It just means this happened as far up to, to the point where, so all the law and the prophets prophesied to the point of John and Yeshua is prophesying all the same things as the law and the prophets as well as John. So nothing stopped. There is no, there is no transitionary moment. The law is not done away with, as we already talked about Matthew five and a whole bunch of this whole series law that Yeshua is everywhere he's going, he's talking about repentance, meaning people to turn back to doing behavior of the commandments, which is the behavior of the Father. So all this is saying, all Yeshua is talking about is the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. Why? What was he just talking about? The kingdom of heaven. It's people that are prophesying about the kingdom of heaven, which is exactly what Yeshua and John the Baptist were doing, and all the and the prophets. It's all about the message of the kingdom of heaven. This is why Yeshua tells us, that he must preach the gospel of the kingdom of, of heaven, the gospel of the kingdom of God. That was why he was sent. And that message is suffering violence because John was killed. And this is the passage, if you line up with Luke, and, and this is the passage where John was killed. So we have an issue here where now the prophets and this, this concept, it's the kingdom of heaven, suffering violence because violent men are taking this message away from the people that need to hear it. And Yeshua is about to be a part of that violence. Shortly in the next few years of his life as well as the disciples They're gonna do their best to take this message away from people guys. This is why <laughs> How many people do you hear preaching this message this is this is where pray for those out there that are trying to actually Preach this message that Yeshua preached the gospel of the kingdom of God Because the violent take it by force They don't want you preaching this message because this message blows through all their lies and all their deception Right, so if you never if you never understood it or seen it, go to my playlist. It's my new beginner's playlist. I have two videos that go over the gospel of the kingdom of God, break it down with scripture, and then um, it's there's there's component pieces to the message, which is what Yeshua covers in all of his words, but the whole thing together is expounded upon in all the prophets of the Old Testament everywhere. So, this is all he's trying to say that this that's why the, there's violence being done against uh, the kingdom of heaven at this point. They're taking the message, the good news, the gospel, the word gospel means good news. They're taking the good news of the kingdom of heaven away from people. And that's what people need to hear. So Yeshua then goes on to say, if you won't accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now, why does he say that? Well, it's because he's quoting from Malachi 4, 4 through 6, where it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in orb for all of Israel. By the way, guys, Horeb is another word that's used in scripture from Mount Sinai says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So it's a twofold thing, guys. This is why she was talking about it. Um, Well, before I go into that, let me just read this passage real quick. So this is what we talked about in part one, but this is what John the Baptist is fulfilling from that passage in Malachi 4. It's Matthew 3, 1-6 through 6, Where now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea Saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand Notice the message he's seeing Repent, do the, do the behavior of the kingdom Do the behavior of God Which is the commandments Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand you See what I'm saying? That's the message that's synchronous together he then, as he explains to us in verse five and six, then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all of Judea and all the districts around the Jordan. They were going; they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Guys, the word sin is transgressing the law of God. So we have repentance means you're coming back you're not transgressing you're not confessing you're not sinning you're coming back to doing the law of god the people are coming out to him realize their bad behavior they're changing it so they're going to stop sinning they're going to start going back to doing the commandments of god and it look all these people are coming out to him from all these different regions this is what was prophesied of them to turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers and vice versa which means they're coming out of their idolatry, which brings confusion and division. And they're coming back to solidarity and keeping the commandments as families and as, as towns and as cities, as units, as communities. Yeshua steps in because the harvest is ripe in that moment for him to do this. This is why also uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verses uh, 2 through 5, it talks about John the Baptist. You know, he, he came to prepare the way. That's how he's preparing the way. He's getting people to, to be conscious of, Turning from their bad behavior, which is against the law of God, to start doing the law of God, is going to prepare their hearts and minds to receive Yeshua's message more than would have had John the Baptist not came and prepared the way. Does that make sense? And all of the preparing, the whole lingo about preparing the way is getting people to be able to understand Yeshua's message, which is do the commandments of God and the kingdom of heaven is coming. And a part of that kingdom of heaven, which is the new Jerusalem, which is the garden of Eden returned, that's going to come down through the firmament. No, you don't live on a ball of space. Is that you're going to be doing the father's behavior in that kingdom. We're going to rat out the wicked. There's no more deception. There's going to be healing. There's going to be salvation. There's going to be eternal life. It's going to be good, right? So this is the gospel, of the kingdom of God. So that message would have fallen on deaf ears had Yeshua stepped in and John the Baptist had not prepared the way. So this is very important that they were working together as a tandem. This is this is why the Scriptures prophesied to them to work together in this capacity. Matthew 11, 25-30. And at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son will reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So if we look right, real quick, let's, let's focus on the last part of this passage. What does it mean that we'll find rest for our souls with Yeshua? You guys, he's quoting from Jeremiah six sixteen. 16. It says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the way and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. And walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Now, this is, of course, you know, from Jeremiah's day, he was also dealing with an obstinate people that refused to do the commandments of God. But at the same time, Yeshua is quoting from this because he's dealing with the same context. The same kind of people that he's dealing with, right? Where he has obstinate, the Pharisees are the obstinate people that refuse to walk in the simplicity of the light yoke, right? And they're putting on a heavy yoke that people can't bear. The people want a light yoke right they want a good teacher they want a good shepherd and that's where he's he's saying to them yeah i've got that will come to me learn from me i'm humble and gentle you'll find rest for your souls and he's quoting from from a passage that says ask for the ancient paths where the good way is what is good what is that how is that defined in the old testament because this leads to the rest for your souls well that is defined for us in proverbs 4 2 for the Almighty Yahweh says, For I give you good doctrine, do not forsake my law. That's the commandments. Do not forsake my law. That is good doctrine. That is the ancient paths. It's as old as it gets because it's what the Creator has done before in all eternity, before time again. It's the ancient path in every sense of that concept. Okay. And this is what Yeshua is saying everywhere he goes. Keep the commandments. Matthew 12, 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and picked heads of grain and uh, to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what's not lawful on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent for the son of man is the Lord of Sabbath. What I love about this so much is because not, not just because we get like, we get some haters coming to Yeshua, trying to falsely accuse him of stuff out of context, because as he reveals to them in his, brilliant answer (laughs) brilliant and you know um you know just uh courageous bold answer to them he's basically saying he's calling them out have you not read the law have you not read the scriptures this is something that guys we deal with this every day we answer questions all the time i obviously i don't take this particular approach with everybody but that's the general premise that we deal with almost every day. We get questions, especially if you guys have seen any of my debates, go into the debates playlist on my channel and you can see the debates that we do. When you start seeing me, I'm trying to be as patient as possible, but you see this over and over and over. People say something against scripture. And I, I immediately know I'm like, uh, you haven't read the law of God. Have you, you haven't studied it. You still think that it's somehow bad. You, so you think it's a burden. So you haven't actually studied or read it. Have you now the Pharisees, were a little more, they were not just ignorant. They were pernicious. Okay. They were intentionally, that's why he called them brutal vipers and liars and thieves and murderers. They were intentionally obfuscating the law of God and teaching Talmudic traditions. It was a, it was a intentional concept. It was, it was because they were given up to pride and, and hypocrisy and all kinds of other things. So it wasn't just simply, they just didn't know or they had some bad teaching. They were according to Yeshua's words, intentionally leading the people to be twice the son of hell as they are twice the son of the lake of fire so it's a very it's a dastardly thing they were doing okay that's why he, he didn't hold back with them he's always getting in their face and correcting them and, and being willing to call them a description that some people might think is not nice because these people were intentionally deceiving the people as false prophets and false teachers. So Matthew 12, one through eight, where he's talking in here and he and they're trying to come to him and put him in a corner and they're trying to say, oh, why why are you why are you disciples doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Well, for one, that itself is a a false statement because this is where, you know, for all the pastors that may be watching, so many pastors and preachers are told that, oh, see, look, it's, you know, the Pharisees are trying to ask Jesus why he's breaking the Sabbath. They're trying to keep the law. Guys, no, this is where it requires further research on who the Pharisees were and what they taught. And this is revealed to us in the Gospels, but we just have to take the words seriously when Jesus says them. We also get this in the New Testament, the book of Acts, and further on into the letters of Paul. The Pharisees were, were persecuting Yeshua and his disciples because they kept the law of God. The Pharisees were persecuting them everywhere they went. The Pharisees, as Yeshua tells us in Mark 7, Mark 20, and Matthew 23, and, and several other places, they were not keeping the law of God. In fact, we even said Paul tells this in Galatians 6. They were not keeping it. They were trying to push their traditions and supersede them over the law of God. Now, their traditions claimed to be the law of God. This is the destructive deception of Talmudic Judaism. So they, they were imposing themselves as teachers and shepherds saying that, oh, yeah, we keep the law of God. In fact, yeah, if you if you don't want to sin and break Deuteronomy 24, 19, then you have to do all these other things before you don't you you abide in Deuteronomy twenty four nineteen. You have to do all these other things. You see what I'm saying? So this is the problem where they were nullifying, as Yeshua tells them in Mark seven eight through eleven. They're nullifying the commandments of God for the sake of their traditions. And this was this was a problem. Okay, we still have that today. So if you're a pastor and you've been told by whatever seminary you went to that the law of God is a burden and that it's bad, you're believing something that was sold to protestant churches by talmudic judaism from the uh, from over a thousand years ago i don't know if you realize that or not but you've been sold a lie so this is where we have a whole playlist called tour apologetics i break down all the law and we're doing it you know as well with with this series as well so hopefully you start to see That the Pharisees are constantly coming up to try to trap Jesus in something according to their traditions and not according to the actual law of God. And I'm going to show you that with scripture on this statement right here. Okay, there's three parts highlighted. Let's look at the first one real quick. Jeremy 1427, what the Pharisees accused Jesus of their their uh, their disciples were taking the heads of grain as they walked through the wheat field and they're crushing them up eating them. Right, like a little snack as they walked, and the Pharisees like, "Why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath?" What were they claiming? So there's two different ways that people try to take this statement. The first way is they claim that that they were actually picking food, which the Pharisee says was against the law on the Sabbath to pick your food, um, and they're because they associate it with actually working, and it, they even take it as far to say you can't cook either, which is not in Scripture. That's a that's a tradition from Talmudic Judaism. Okay, some then. Also, another another vein of this, they claim the Pharisees were saying that the, the disciples were stealing the heads of grain from someone that who because it wasn't their field. You see what I mean? All right, so let's address that first, and then we'll go into the um to the eating part in just a minute. Deuteronomy 14, 27 29. If we look here in this instruction where it talks about ties and first fruits and what's a portion for people to have and be given, it says in verse 27 to 29, I just highlighted the last part here, the Levite, because he has no portion. Or inheritance among you the alien the fatherless and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order That the lord your god may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do So in this instruction in the torah he's explaining to them about excess food They bring in for the tithe and it's to go to these certain groups because these groups have in some In some sense a disadvantage or in the case of the levites they weren't given an actual inheritance So they may not have as much land to grow food on so as a result the other tribes, they got the excess that was brought in on the tithe, but they can't eat all that food because it's a 12 to one ratio. So there's a lot of extra food. So therefore, the surplus is available for the alien. That's the stranger that's living among them. The fatherless Yeshua was fatherless, by the way. He's also part of a uh, half Levite and the widow who are in your town. So I'm just giving you a breakdown, a preface for the idea of how the father viewed food and who it was available to and how, but let's look specifically about food that grows in fields. And we see in Jeremy 26, um, 10 through 11. I'm sorry. This is the, this is a reiteration of Jeremy 14. I just, as a secondary witness want to show behold, I brought the first fruits of the produce of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me and you shall set it down before the Lord, your God and worship before the Lord, your God, you and the Levite and the alien who is among you. shall rejoice in all the good. The Lord, your God has given you in your household. So just another example here of just saying how the Lord wants them to share the excess food and Leviticus 19, nine through 10, it says, now when you reap the harvest of your land, this is to mount like they were, remember you showing his disciples are walking through a wheat field You shall not reap the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So in short, all it's saying is when the farmer goes out to take care of his field, he goes, he makes his pass through, but he doesn't get all the edges around the the corners. And if there's anything dropped, leave it. That's fine. Father's going to bless you with everything you got. You leave those those little bits for the people that might need it. You See what I'm saying? So the idea of this, what people interpret this claim that the, um, the unlawful thing that's being done according to the Pharisees was that they were stealing food from someone. That, no, the food was already intended to be gleaned for those who might need it for a variety of different categories of all of which Yeshua and his disciples easily fall into in this scenario. Um, and we also have... Matthew 12, 1 through 8, this other idea that, that he's breaking the Sabbath specifically because he's eating or that he's cooking in Sundergard or he's gathering food to be eaten on the Sabbath. But that's why Yeshua goes into the and breaks it down in the bulk of this passage in verses 3 through 7, where he, he goes on to explain to him like they haven't read the law of God. Apparently they don't realize that if you're doing something that's if you're eating food on the Sabbath, the father's not going <laughs> to chastise you just because it's not. Food that um, that you haven't already brought into your house and prepared. You see what I'm saying? Just like there was already food that David and his men ate the, the showbread when they weren't supposed to, but yet because they needed it, that was the father was like, yeah, I've got I've got food. It's part of my law. Any excess food that I have, if you're in need, you can have it. That's what we just read from Leviticus 19 and, and Jeremy 26. You see what I'm saying? So David and his men are not guilty for going in and taking the showbread. They needed it in their, in their mention. Um So this is a no, Abraham. I didn't. I didn't have the passages up. No. If you want to put a specific comment, just put it in the in the chat after we're done, brother. Um, but basically, this idea is he's this the the Talmudic tradition of Judaism was that they didn't want you to cook or gather anything, and then yeah, I I appreciate it, brother. I I'm not sure. Um, I haven't heard, yeah, I haven't heard them talk about the I haven't heard anybody try to rebuttal that the Pharisees were—they're not eating grapes in this in this idea in Matthew 12. Um, so I'm not quite sure what you're what you're trying to get at. But uh, but yes, I agree with you in the same in the same spirit of them being able to eat grapes and feel to their their leisure. Um, this this idea of them having excess food, just like we read from uh, Jeremiah 24 and 26. That any excess that may be gleaned and and dropped, they can leave people that need it, the needy and the the poor can come by and get it if they wanted to. So this was uh, the idea of you wanted the people in Israel to be able to share excess food at all costs. And Yeshua and his men easily fall into this, both in the scenario, the field they're walking through, as well as who Yeshua was to be this son of man, (laughs) which is why he says later on the Lord of the Sabbath, because if you know the storyline of the son of man, he's going to become the ultimate high priest. What were those laws that we just read about the food that was available for the, the priests, the Levites? You see what I'm saying? This is why he says something greater than the temple is even here. So if food was made for the temple and food was dedicated for the high priest, Yeshua is greater than all that. You don't think he can get some food if he wants it from a field that qualifies within the law of being able to grab food out of the field according to the law of God? So in every respect, Yeshua is keeping the law of God in this, in this uh, passage here. The Pharisees are imposing their own quote-unquote law and calling it unlawful because they had developed their own tradition that people weren't supposed to do this, which actually negated the law of God. And that's why it's called a heavy burden that people can't bear. That's why it's called oppression, as you read from First united 98. This is why Yeshua reprimands them so badly. This is why in Acts chapter 10, Peter also repeats an idea about him following a law of segregation against Gentiles that was not truly a law at all. It was only a traditional law from the Jews, from the Pharisees. It wasn't actually in the Torah or the law of God. So he had to be taught with the actual vision from heaven what the actual Torah was, what the actual law of God was, and get rid of that leaven of the Pharisees and their bad traditions and teachings. See what I'm saying? So this is what Yeshua is addressing in this very moment right here. And this is why he reminds them. If you guys remember as we went through the past, I think it was in chapter 6 or 7, where Yeshua is, is basically saying to them, uh, to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Well, he's repeating it to them here. If you had known what this means, remember, he told them a few chapters earlier, go and learn what this means, right? Because they were accusing him of, of eating with uh, the publicans and the and the tax collectors and the sinners. And he, he was like, yeah, you should go and learn what this means. Meaning, and he, he goes on to expound about the spirit of law and everything. And, and the, the idea of what he wanted to do as far as uh, what the father's heart was in the law, which was to go into not condemn people, right? To not prejudge people and condemn them, but to be able to be open with them and share the actual love of God with them. You see what I mean? So in this moment, the love of God is being represented through just the father's law about I've got all this food and all this situation so that nobody can be without, whether it's for a personal farm or a vineyard or for what's brought in with the tithe through the temple and be distributed through the to the orphans, the widows, the you know, all the fatherless. All these scenarios that the father makes sure everyone's taken care of. And the Pharisees are trying to stifle that and accuse an innocent man of sin and transgression because they're, you know, a brood of vipers. So this was the idea because they're not doing the law of God, nor did they have the heart of the law of God. You see what I mean? So this is why Yeshua is reprimanding them on all fronts in this passage. And he's keeping the law in order to reprimand them because they do not know the law. So if this is a passage that you are teaching that, see, Yeshua is breaking the Sabbath. We don't have to keep the Sabbath. Please consider the verses I just given you. Please go read the, the front part of the book. Please go study Exodus to Deuteronomy and learn the law of God yourself so that you have a better perception of what's going on in this conversation. If we look at Matthew 12, 9 through 14. Departing from there, Jesus went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they may accuse him. So it tells you right there their motives. And he said to them, what man is there among you as a sheep? If he falls into a pill on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable than 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 a man than a sh- is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, which is exactly what they were doing in the grains, eating the grains from the wheat, which is exactly what David and his man did, eating the showbread from the temple. You see what I'm saying? Which is exactly what the priests do when they quote unquote break the law, break the Sabbath by doing their job, which is a part of the law in the temple on the Sabbath. And from Numbers 28. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And only this Pharisaical mindset tries to come in and say, you you know, you even you can't do anything on the Sabbath. Even the good stuff, you can't do it. That's the Pharisaical mindset of condemning the innocent, which is unrighteousness. And so he heals the guy. And at the very end in verse 14, it says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. So as they might as to how they might destroy him. So it's telling you right there, their motives are hard. They're not trying to keep the law of God because the law of God is not a burden. The law of God is the light yoke the Pharisees were not keeping. They were pushing a different religion called Talmudic Judaism. If we keep going, we're almost done here in Matthew 12. Thirty-eight through forty-two, it says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of the Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, Something greater than Jonah's here. The queen of the South will rise up with the generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Huge, huge statements here, guys. If you understand what is it that Jonah was in the belly of the monster three days and three nights comparative to Yeshua being the heart of the earth, what's going on here? Why is Yeshua comparing any sign given to the being the sign of Jonah, And we actually did an entire expanded teaching on this with like lots of scriptures. Um, It's on my milk and meat playlist. If you're interested, please go see it. It was from a week and a half ago. And it was called, uh, Why Did Jesus Mention Jonah? I'm going to give you a brief summary tonight. But if you want the expanded and all the scriptures, and I explain it in great, great detail, um, please go see that video. Okay, so Jonah chapter 2, 1 through 7. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God out of the belly of the will and said, I cried in my affliction to the Lord my God. And he hearkened to me even to the cry out of the belly of Sheol. So this guy's is a moment here where Jonah's crying. Yes, his body is dead in the belly of the well, but he is crying and praying to God out of Sheol. That's a specific word in the old Testament with a specific location. And it's not at the bottom of the sea and it's not in the belly of a well. Thank you, West blaze. He's dropping the link there um, for people. If they want to go see, why did Jesus mention Jonah? Here's the link as well. So, This whole concept here is that Jonah as we read on this in the following verses He says you heard my voice You did cast me into the depths of the heart of the sea And the floods compassed me All your billows and your waves have passed upon me And I said I'm cast out of your presence Shall I indeed look again toward your holy temple What Water was poured around me to to the soul The lowest deep compassed me My head went down to the clefts of the mountains I went down into the earth Whose bars are the everlasting barriers Guys, he's not just in the water being swallowed up by a a fish. He went down to the bottom of the Mediterranean. He drowned. Then the fish got him and took him to dry land. He drowned in the sea. His soul is in Sheol. His body is being saved by the whale. So he's praying. And he says, I went down. Who's that's why he says I went down to the earth, the clefts of the mountains, whose bars are the everlasting barriers. Why his cry is coming out of the belly of Sheol? Because he's dead. He says, Yet, O Lord my God, let let my ruined life be restored. When my soul was failing me, I remember the Lord and my pr- and may my prayer come to you in your holy temple. It does. It does. This fish spits him out, he's resurrected. <laughs> On dry land, he can breathe. You're not going to resurrect him in the belly of a well where he can't breathe. He was resurrected on dry land. He's resurrected. He's brought to life. He's literally telling you he's dead, according to the definitions of these words. This is why Yeshua is comparing Jonah to him. Yeshua is resurrected out of the heart of the earth after three days as well. If we even go on to the other part of the sign of Jonah, which is not just the resurrection which is an incredible sign that gets people to believe your message but what was the message of Jonah which was also repentance and we see this that's why he says the men of Nineveh will stand up at the at the judgment against you people because you you know did not did not repent in, in spite of all these miracles I've shown you so the men of Nineveh did repent in spite of the of the sign of resurrection as well as the call to repent by Jonah this is what we read in, in chapter 3, 5 through 10. It says, The men of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, took off his raiment from him, put on sackcloth, set on ashes. And a proclamation was made, and it was commanded in Nineveh by the king, by his great men, saying, Let not men or cattle or oxen or sheep taste anything, nor food, nor drink water. So men and cattle were clothed with sackcloth. And cried earnestly to God, and they turned everyone from their evil way and from the iniquity that was in their hands, saying, Who knows if God will repent and turn from his fierce anger? And so we shall not perish. And God saw their works, and they turned that they turned from their evil ways, and God repented of the evil which he said he would do to them, and they did not do it. So here is a beautiful moment where they actually repented, and Yeshua is telling us that the men of Nineveh will condemn the men of Capernaum who did not accept and repent. Guys, this means the men at Nineveh, in this particular generation, generation at least, the generation of Noah, or excuse me, of, Gen- of Jonah, they're going to be in the resurrection. They're going to be saved. <laughs> Were they born in Israel? Were they Israelites? No, they're grafted in. Grafted in, they're the Assyrians. This is how good God is. The grafting process has always been part of his law. This is what Paul tries to explain to us in Romans 10 and 11. There is no, just like those 12 thrones that we read about earlier, but that Yeshua promised in Matthew 19, 26, 27, that the, the disciples would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Guys, there's no there's no throne for the Gentiles. There's There's no gate in the New Jerusalem for the Gentiles. If you believe in Yeshua, who's your high priest, the king of Israel, and you start doing his ways in faith and belief, you start discipling after him, you're grafted in to Israel. I don't know which tribe you're going to be a part of. The father does, but you're grafted into that process. There is no Gentile throne that the 12 disciples are ruling over. The word Gentile means of the nations, and it's someone that is out of covenant. See what I'm saying? So if you were born in a different nation, like the men of Nineveh, who may have been born in Assyria, or that what we would now call modern day iraq and iran and you come to faith in god and you repent you turn from your wicked ways you start doing his behavior that's the definition of repentance therefore you're grafted into israel and you're depending upon god through his messiah the son of man for your salvation it's a beautiful part it's a beautiful idea and you're no longer you may be you may be ethnically from a gentile nation but spiritually as far as who you're who you're called by god you're called israel as a part of israel which is why there's only 12 thrones to judge the 12 tribes of israel see what i'm saying so just something to consider when you're reading this idea of why yeshua is comparing himself to jonah what's he doing he's he's preaching repentance to the people around him who were a wicked and adulterous generation just like jonah was he's going to give them at his resurrection the sign of Jonah which Jonah was resurrected. So this is why Yeshua is making this huge comparison and why he's telling you that the men of Nineveh actually repented which is a beautiful thing, beautiful story. So this is hopefully hopefully been a blessing to you guys tonight. Um if there's any questions, put them in all caps and drop them in the chat. Looks like we already got a few um coming in, get right to so 303 is asking in Acts fifteen ten, what did Peter mean when he stated this yoke was too heavy for us and our ancestors? I'm actually going to cover that when I get to Matthew twenty three. But it's what I've been talking about tonight. This is the yoke of the Pharisees, brother. This is what Matthew, Yeshua talks about Matthew twenty three four. Um, this is what he's saying. This yoke of them trying to do Judaism, which was the, the context of Matthew of Acts fifteen, is that um, some of the. Uh, the conversation was about them keeping the traditions of the Pharisees, which was you had to get circumcised first before you were considered to be saved. And so this is this heated discussion in verse 1 of Acts 15 between Paul and Barnabas and these other certain Jews who were claiming that you had to be circumcised to be saved. Now, don't get me wrong. Circumcision is a command. It's an eternal command, and it is something that God wants you to do, but it's not your entryway into faith and belief and covenant. It is something that you do as a sign that you already are in faith and belief and covenant, but the Pharisees of that day. And, and one of the traditions of that day was they were pushing this idea that you had to be circumcised first before you could even be considered to be as a part of Israel. But that's not, it's not how the father works, right? Abraham followed God for decades before he got circumcised. See what I'm saying? So yeah, that was, it's the yoke of the Pharisees, brother. Let's see if there's another quick question. Oh, no problem, Abraham, you may have just got here, brother. Yes, yes, that's right. It's it's in uh, Deuteronomy twenty three, and and it's. Um hopefully I showed for the other verses from Leviticus 19, nine through 10 and the other places, which they all you know add to each other and expound. So yeah, that's exactly right. There's private property. You can go through it. So they weren't stealing. This was a part of the process of the law established in Israel to make sure everyone had food at all times and no one went hungry. And it's a beautiful system that I wish we could do in our country. Um, West plays music is asking if someone in Judaism has a heart for Yahweh and his word keeps his law, but rejects Christ out of tradition. Are they able to receive the promise of the covenant? Will they have a chance to accept him. You've asked two very different questions, brother. I'm going to address the first one. Okay. Is let's, I'm going to, that last, that last question I'm going to leave off for a minute. I'll I'll address in just one second. Let's, let's attack the first one real quick. And for anybody watching, I'm going to repeat it real quick. If someone in Judaism has a heart for Yahweh and his word, keeps his law but rejects christ out of tradition are they able to receive the promises of the covenant you cannot keep his law and reject christ yeshua is the high priest of the law of god he's ministering the law of god in the tabernacle of heaven above if you're rejecting the high priest that the father anointed and appointed for you you're rejecting the authority of the father That was given through the priest and thereby you're rejecting the instruction i.e the law of god which also means you actually don't have a heart for the father you see what i'm saying you have a heart for tradition so if if a person has rejected that concept this is why Yeshua is prophesied to be the high priest who ministers on our behalf to the father according to the law of god in the heavenly sanctuary above, this is what was prophesied of him, Psalm 110, 1-4, Zechariah 6, 11-15. Enoch chapter 46 and 48, like there's so many different places, right? Zechariah, uh, Psalm 2, 7-12. through 12. If you reject the Messiah, the Son of Man, the one that was destined to prophesy, as we read earlier from Isaiah 30, the arm of the Lord, Isaiah 53, the arm of the Lord, if you reject the one he sent for you, you're rejecting the Father. And this is what Yeshua tells us as well. And and what was the one that was sent for you supposed to be doing? He was supposed to mediate the law for you. So if you're rejecting the person and his office, you're rejecting the law, you're rejecting the father, and you're revealing that you prefer tradition over the father. And this was a huge, huge problem within the days of Yeshua. And it, and it continues today in a lot of... Um, Jewish communities, right? Where they they push that you cannot be a Jew if you accept Christ, which is something that was started back in the first century, which is really sad, but that's the that's the the brainwashing that goes on. And I'm sure if, if someone that was raised Jewish uh, who's practicing Judaism right now, if they saw this and they heard what I just said, they're going to call me anti-Semitic because that's their staple rebuttal that they're taught to say anytime anyone agrees with anything in Judaism is that suddenly you're anti-Semitic. But that's not true because my Messiah, My Messiah, my Savior, Yeshua of Nazareth from the tribe of Judah was supposedly from the ethnic tribe and region of Semites. So I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm anti-Judaism. It's a big difference. I'm anti-Talmudic Judaism. I'm anti-Kabbalah. I'm anti-Zionist state. I'm Kingdom of God. I'm New Jerusalem. I'm Yeshua HaMashiach. I'm pro law of God. I'm not pro traditions of Judaism. So there's a huge brainwashing difference between a cultural ethnicity and what they think is a religion unto themselves versus the actual scriptures and what they say, Um, who can be grafted in who's keeping the law of God, who's the high priest appointed for you. And this is how we are to divide the difference in someone's motivation. So again, like I've said in so many other shows, even in Yeshua's day, we see it in today, in modern day as well. Talmudic Judaism, they hold up the law of God like they're following it, but then they just serve you up their traditions. And as Yeshua says in Mark 7 and Matthew 23, it negates the actual law of God and in favor of their traditions. It's deceptive. It's very deceptive. So, I, okay. Sorry for the rant, but that's the second question. Will they have a chance to accept them? 100% yes. At any time. At any time. As we just read tonight, right? No one knows the Father except for the Son, or except anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father to. You see what I'm saying? So yeah, absolutely. Pray for that brother if you know him, um, or, or or sister. Pray for them that they may come and and to the the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, right through faith and belief, and uh, and they will actually realize that they will keep the law as a result of that because they'll be following a high priest of Yahweh's Torah, and that's who they're discipling after. You see what I mean? So. If their heart is to know God and to, and to know his behavior Which is the law And do it better They can only do that By discipling after Christ They can't do that Discipling after Tamanic Judaism So yeah that, Hopefully that's a in-depth answer For you, brother Alright, let's see if there's Any more questions real quick Thank you David Shearer For reminding everybody To be concise as possible James Henry is asking Why was the tribe of Levi Omitted from your list? From my list of what uh, you mean, Yeshua is. You the, remember the the priesthood in the tribe of Levi. There's um, the the. Li- I'm guessing you're asking about the list of tribes from Numbers chapter one. Well, that's because those are the heads of the the tribes of Israel, excluding the Levites, because Moses and Aaron were the head of the Levite tribe. They were Levites, so that's hopefully that's the quickest quickest answer for you, brother. Um, and as you know, the Levites um, are going to be uh, picked by the father again, uh, Isaiah 66, 17 through 21, and during the millennial reign to be servants uh, to the father. But they're not going to be the, the authority, the top priesthood, because that'll be the Michael, Sedek, the resurrected righteous. So that's uh, the prophecy of the millennial reign. All right, let's see if there's any other questions. Bobby Moe's asking, cooking on Shabbat, is that cool? I assumed so, as well as heating your home and turning on lights, but I was trying to do as little as possible so I could focus on Shabbat. Yeah, you know, the the idea that to focus on Shabbat is is obviously, you're going know, to focus on the Father on Shabbat. is That's that's the, the goal, right? But Judaism tells you that you can't, you know, start a fire above a certain degree and that you can't turn your lights on and that you can't do all this nonsense. Like, this is not instructing Torah. The basic command in Sabbath is do not work for money. That's the concept. Don't buy or sell. Don't don't work for money. Pretend like you're in that kingdom of God. What would you do? You praise the Lord. You'd have a good time. You'd learn about his word. You do the best you can to focus on him. Um, But you're not you're not going out to hunt, which is procuring your your provisions. You're not going out to the well to draw water. We don't do that stuff in modern day. You know what I'm saying? So like this is where Judaism tries to come in and say you can't even cook either. You got to warm up leftover food or you can't even warm up leftover food. You got to have cold food the next day. You see what I'm saying? This is this is where they come up with all these crazy extra uh, little rules and regulations that's not in the scripture because the scriptures, and I've done an entire video on this. Thank you, West Place, for dropping this in the chat. If you guys haven't seen this, go check it out. I break it down in great to tell from the Old Testament. Can you cook on Shabbat? And so that I think that'll benefit you greatly. Check it out, brother. Yeah, exactly. Stephen Schofield. I addressed that in my video um, that I just posted the link that's in the chat. Uh, Exodus 35 is talking about your vocation, about not making a fire for your vocation. And this is, you got to go into the Hebrew. I do that in the video and I show you in the Hebrew uh, what it's saying. It's not about you can't cook. a. I mean, <laughs> guys, eating is a basic concept. What did I just read from the law tonight about all the concepts about God providing food in all these different ways in his Torah so that everyone always says food and can Make food like it's a daily concept. It's not considered work. Yes, some people work specifically as cooks in a restaurant, but that's a different context, right? So you're not going to go to your place of employment and cook. But if you're at home, you're going to cook for your family. That's a basic necessity in life. This is what we'll be doing in the kingdom. This is what it's called sacrifices. This is why they're called Burnt offerings this is why this is why Isaiah 56 7 says the sacrifices of the resurrected of the holy saints will be Accepted in his holy mountain during the millennial reign This is we're going to be cooking in the eternal shabbat in heaven in you know in the new jerusalem. So it's not considered work. You're not working for money. You're just literally Providing the needs of your body for you and your family. That's not a job. That's that's the basic concept in life So this is why judaism has made it a burden by telling you that that's work It's not, that's not what scripture defines as work. All right. Mr. Bear is asking a question that I'm struggling to read. To be honest, Sean, is it wrong to say Christ crucified for our sin? No, no. That's just a, that's like a, if you're okay, I'm going to, if you're saying that, uh, is, if you're asking me, is it wrong to say Christ was crucified for our sins? Then, no, that's that's just a bumper sticker phrase, brother. That's just a, a cliche, trite phrase that we've heard from the church. Um, that you know, we also see allusions to in the New Testament in some of Paul's letters that Christ was crucified for our sins, right? Which means he had to go through that process to get to his resurrection, to get to his priesthood. That's what he received when he's ascended to the Father at his ascension in Acts chapter one. He ascends to get to his priesthood to stand you know in the minister in the heavenly temple above his hebrews chapter 8 1 through 5 explains to us so that he can minister for us on our behalf atonement to the father and this is a huge part of his job that was prophesied for him um so that's the mechanics of what was prophesied of messiah and what he does for you and your sins and going through you know uh being beaten and you know falsely accused and murdered on a cross and being crucified that's a part of that process and that's where we get this very generic phrase that he's crucified for our sins But that doesn't explain everything. There's more to it. That's just what I call a bumper sticker phrase It's a very short summary, but uh, yeah, hopefully that uh, Yeah, I would just we go to our playlist um, Priesthoods, it's our playlist the priesthoods and go to uh, Yeshua our eternal high priest and if you check that video out, we explain this with great detail scriptures from Old New Testament and go over the priesthood of Yeshua and how he died for your sins. So hopefully that will that'll help you. In fact, let me grab that video real quick. I'll drop it in the link for you. Um, so you can click on it real quick if you need to. Yeah, this is uh, hopefully will be what you're asking about as far as if you want scripture to kind of understand that statement a lot better. Okay, so I dropped that link for you. Uh, Please go check that out when you have a chance, and I think it'll really help you. Okay, brother. But it's a good question, though. It is Nathan Lyles uh, is asking. So can you do work as long as you don't get paid? Well, again, it's it is supposed to be a day rest, right? You're taking off work, but you'd have to be the judge of what are you defining as work? But usually in scripture, Exodus 35 and other places defined as your vocation, what you do to employ yourself, to gain wealth and to, you know, to, to get money for your life. But, um, you know, what did Jesus tell us in, in Matthew 12, right? If, or in other places, if your donkey falls, in a well, would you not go out and get him? You know, some people might call that work to go tend to your animals, but yet you're saving the animal. You're doing good on the Sabbath. You know what I'm saying? If you go to your, um, you know, in the old Testament, it was always encouraged. And in the new Testament, it's always encouraged to go out and help the, the orphan and the widow. Um, let's take the widow, right? Say there's a, say there's someone that you know on your street that you live on. She's maybe she's four or five houses down and you know that she's like 78 years old and her husband's already passed and she has no one to mow her yard for you. If you go do that on the Sabbath, you're not working, you're doing good. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, right? And she needs that done for herself. She can't do it herself. Um, You know, I wouldn't accept money for it, that's for sure. But if you want to go help people like that, then I mean, that's there's a thousand ways that you can do good on the Sabbath, and it's not to earn income. So I would just try to keep it in that perspective. Alan Moyo is asking. What do the departed souls do in Sheol? Thanks in advance. Hey, check out my video that I did. Uh, we already dropped the link in the chat and it's uh why did God create hell? I go over that concept as far as what they're doing, waiting. We see a little, a little dose of this in Luke chapter 16, 19 through four to 19 through 41, where Yeshua explains the two compartments that are where the unrighteous and the righteous are separated and in Sheol. He does this with the parable of the Lazarus and the rich man and that you see that, you know, um, the unrighteous, they're in emotional torment uh, awaiting the lake of fire because they know that's their only the next destination for them. They're, there's no option. Then the righteous are in rest. They're in a place of um, waiting for the Lord. What do they actually do? I don't know what they actually do, but I know that Psalm 119, verse 7 and 8, uh, excuse me, Psalm 19, verse 7 and 8. Nope, I'm saying this bad. Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8 talks about resting in Sheol when you die. All right. And so the, and the spirit of God is there with you too. So you're going to be happy. And there's uh first Enoch talks about, there's angels that watch over that place down there. So more, I don't know if you're going to have a conversation with an angel or not and hang out until the resurrection happens, but um it's a, it's considered a place of rest. Okay. So you'll be at peace. Yeah. You're welcome, Nathan. Hopefully it was a good answer for you, brother. All right. Richard Mary is asking is entertaining. Is entertainment wrong on Sabbath, like watching TV, football, etc. Um, That's, that's between you and the father. I don't, I don't exactly know what you're watching what you're calling entertainment. I know you gave the example of football, but, um, ultimately it's a day of rest from working for money. But at the same time, we are encouraged to focus on God on that day. You see what I'm saying? Um, we see as was the tradition in scripture that Yeshua on the Shabbat on the Sabbath Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue where they read from the scrolls of God of of the prophets to learn about God. Um, And I'm sure they had a meal. There's, you know, a feast. It's called a feast day in Leviticus 23, one through 3, uh, Sabbath is. So, you know, whether you're, I would encourage, you know, relaxing, uh, sleep in that day if you want to, Um, make a meal, enjoy with family if you can, dedicate it to the Father um, with prayer and learn about his word, right? If you have time later to watch a game, that's between you and God. You see what I'm saying? But I wouldn't work for money on that day. Hopefully that's a decent answer for you, brother. Okay, I think, yeah, Royce Bell asked a question. Um, I always worry about my family and tribulation. How can I stop worrying and know everything will be all right? My family is Muslim, and they think I'm demon-possessed, but I really love and forgive them. I would pray for them, brother. Yeah, I mean, you're in a tough situation. Uh, this is uh, kind of a what I read from the Scriptures tonight, Matthew 11, kind of what Yeshua alluded to about having faith in Yeshua is going to turn father against son and daughter against mother and uh and just turn families against each other because of the uh the division that that religion you know the belief in yeshua causes because there's all these other influences from other religions that try to uh make uh you know christians a pariah or make followers of yeshua to be hated you know that's the unclean spirits working in the nations of other people and that those indoctrinations of those religions and it's it can be very challenging brother we'll pray for you that you um have the courage to deal with them with love and, and show them, you know, the beauty of God's behavior. Um, and I know with, you know, with, uh, come uh, from a Muslim background, they, they already claim to be following God, right. They already claim to be to living by a standard that is set forth in the Quran. Um, and, and I don't, you know, I don't know if, if they also do the, do the Hadith or not, but I know that they already claim to be living by a righteous standard, but, if you compare that standard to the scripture, there is a huge difference. There's if you've never seen a act 17 apologetics channel on YouTube, you might want to check it out. The gentleman's attitude is a little brash, but if you can get past his attitude, the, the information that he gives and comparing, um, you know, uh, the, the Muslim um, Quran compared to the scriptures of, of the Bible and the differences therein um, it might be really helpful to you to have some conversations with them, to try to, you know, show them, Hey, in the scriptures here, there's, there's a, a a place where the creator wants us to love people in different capacities and this is how he does that so obviously that's everything that we try to do here on our channel too is to show you the beauty of the scriptures um compared to other religions and and how it's vastly vastly superior in loving your neighbors you love yourself and how you know god by doing his behavior so that's that's our goal um, but as again, though, I'm, I'm not trying to in any way, make light of your particular situation. It sounds like it's not, uh, it sounds like it's, it's a challenge for you. And I would be, you know, from what you described, I think it would be a challenge. So yeah, I think you're already on the right track if you, if you're trying to love them and forgive them. And cause you're going to have to do a lot of that, um, with all of them for the rest of your life, whether they, you know, whether they come to Christ or not, even people that come to Christ can still hurt us. And, and uh, be, be ugly to us. We have to love and forgive them. But even still with what you're going through, brother, I just want to, um, you know, send you as much courage as possible and just keep digging in that word, brother. Just keep emulating the behavior of Jesus Christ and that goodness will draw them to you, okay? It's that you let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father who's in heaven. That's that's the goal. That's how we get their attention. So just keep emulating the behavior of Jesus and, and um, I just pray the Father gives you that wisdom. You know what I'm saying? It's a tough spot <laughs> Covenant kid. I appreciate you Covenant kid of you who is making an observation here. There's 98 people watching and only 38 likes you guys smash that like button. If you haven't already, if you, if this, if this benefited you at all, if there's anything in this show that you learned, please share it. If there's anything you liked about, about the breakdown of the scriptures or some of the answers I'm given uh, please hit the like button. This is, helps us with YouTube algorithms, helps people get this message out. If you think that what I'm talking about tonight, other people need to hear it, 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 unless you directly shared your social media or send it to them through messenger or whatever, through email the easiest way you can help spread the, the good message or these videos that people can see them hit the like button, subscribe to our channel. And uh, this is the best way to do it. I appreciate you uh, for the reminder covenant kid of you guys. I'll take a couple more questions and then I think we're running up to the end of our time tonight. Looks like uh, Julie Steinbrink, she's asking, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Matthew 12, 32. Sorry if you already answered that. No, I didn't answer that because I actually, like I've said at the beginning of these episodes where I'm covering large portions of big books with lots of stuff, I only have time to focus on so much, okay? Otherwise, I would not be able to get through this. I mean, I would not. Otherwise, I'd be on the book of Matthew for two years. Does that make sense? I'm trying to do, a, uh, I'm trying to, walk the line of covering what I think are some really important points of context. If a pastor is watching this video um, to help them understand the references of the old Testament. Um, But some of the other things I have to just kind of jump over. Unfortunately this week, this is one of the passages I just jumped over, but yes, it's a great question. You blaspheme the Holy spirit. Um, I would say, what is the word blaspheme? You know, you have to look up the definition of it, um, but ultimately it's it's you are rejecting the Holy Spirit's work and offer to your life. Right. You're um, this is something that if you clearly it's the work of the father through his spirit to you to get you to a place, you know, offering his son to you through, you know, and working to the goodness of God that draws people to repentance. So if you go and you blaspheme that, meaning that you've rejected that and you reject the authority therein then you're rejecting the spirit of God. You're rejecting the father is all that boils down to. So this is why your sins will not be forgiven you because you've rejected the father, which means you rejected the son he sent for you to mediate for your sins and atonement. Therefore, cause you're rejecting the son so you know, see what I'm saying? So it's kind of all tied together. It's kind of like a big statement. Yeshua is making as far as like, if you, if you, uh, uh, uh blaspheme the son of man, your sins still may be forgiven you, but you've blaspheming the father. He's not going to your sins can't be forgiven you, right? So it's because you're rejecting the authority greater than Yeshua, if that makes any sense. But you may reject Yeshua and then change your mind later in repentance because the Father, you haven't rejected the Father um, specifically in that regard. It's it's kind of a unfortunately I'm not doing the best right now (laughs) breaking this down because I don't have the scriptures that I'm popping up in my head from the Old Testament. I don't have them prepared for you with a slide. But uh, basically you're rejecting the father, which means you ultimately are rejecting the son. But just to speak a bad word about, um, about the son, you, you can be forgiven. But to go into a full rejection and blaspheme of the spirit of God, which is what leads you to his kindness, his goodness, which is what leads you to repentance, that means you'll never repent, if that makes sense. Which ultimately means you'll, your sins won't be forgiven you, you'll be thrown like a fire, if that makes any sense. So hopefully that's a decent answer for you. All right, I'll take one more real quick, and then we'll we'll call it a night unless I don't see any other questions. But everyone's awesome for being here. Um, yeah, Alan Moyo, check that link out. Hopefully it'll help you. I appreciate you guys coming in and asking really good questions. Uh, Jay Savoy is asking about a friend who is doing like in a traditional Catholic Latin Mass. But he rebukes the current Catholic Church. What does that make him? Unfortunately, brother, it still makes him a Catholic. Um, but here's the good here's the thing, guys. I know that many times you guys have heard me say that you know, Catholicism is not practicing scripture. Um, they're like the modern day version of, of ancient Judaism, where they hold up the Bible, but then they feed you all this tradition. Um, and that they, their origins are highly occultic. Their leadership is highly occultic. Here's the difference, guys. There's a lot of people sitting in Catholic church that are deceived, that want to know Jesus, have a genuine heart. They want to know him. They're just sitting under bad shepherds. Like Yeshua looked out and the people says, you know, see people, uh, the sheep without a shepherd, right? This is the same thing you see in a lot of Catholic churches is they're. They, they have this system of traditions with the idols and with the, the saints and with all the different prayers and the babblings and, and the confessing your, your sins to a man in a box is what Yeshua told us not to do, right? This whole, con- he's our, the ones we confess our sin to. Um, so that you have all these traditions and things that are highly occultic, that they're carried over from pagan traditions, which is literally what the word Catholic means, meaning universal. But there are a lot of good hearted people that are in that system that have raised in that system that do truly have faith want they want to follow Jesus Christ. They just have bad teachings. So the good news is take them the truth. Take them the scriptures. Take them the law and the prophets. Speak with them the best you can. Pray for them. Right? So it's just like someone else that maybe sitting in a you know Presbyterian church or a Lutheran or Methodist or Baptist. You know, they, they want to know God. They're just sitting under really barely bad teachings, right? Now I will say this though Catholicism is is in my opinion a little bit stronger of a bad teaching than say a Baptist or a Methodist or a Lutheran or something like that. You see what I'm saying? Catholicism is pretty, it's, it's so borderline. This is why I talk harshly about it more than I do favorably. I don't talk favorably about their leadership or their doctrines or the theology. I would only ever talk favorably about the average person that's in a Catholic church. Cause that's all they know. And they're still trying to love Jesus and know God. So if you know someone like that, take them the truth show them the truth of God, show them the scriptures, open it up to them. You know what I'm saying? Um, Just sit them down with just one of our kingdom portions and see if they have any kind of commentary or ask any questions to you. You know what I'm saying? So um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I wish you, you know, that the father gives you the right words to say the right wisdom to approach the situation and uh, you'd be able to, hopefully use some of the resources that we've already provided and that other ministries have already provided out there to, to kind of awaken your friend. to the, to the what's more, what's more is going on out there. So, all right, guys, all right, y'all are awesome. Um, thank you everyone for showing up tonight. Uh, looks like we have a total of 86 people here. Please hit the like button. Now's your moment. It doesn't cost you anything. And uh, it really helps us out. So, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. And we hope to see you back here tomorrow night here on uh, Kingdom Cast.